Welcome to Middle School Walk and Talk, a podcast series offering heart, hope, and health to members of our middle school communities. Hosts Phil Fagel and Jessica McGuire talk all things self-care, student well-being, school culture, and more. Middle School Walk and Talk is designed to support the concepts found in the successful middle school, This We Believe, and is a production of the Association for Middle Level Education. To learn more, visit amle.org. Today's episode, The Most Brilliant Use of 60 Seconds, with special guest, Lori Barron. Today on the Walk and Talk podcast, we're fortunate fortunate enough to have Lori Barron with us. Lori is the superintendent of Evergreen School District in Kalispell, Montana. Welcome, Lori. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm so excited you're here, too. I know that our listeners are in for a treat, and you have so much wisdom that you can share well, with us. I will see what we can do. <laughs> Huh. Lori, you're living and working now in Montana, yep. but you started your career in Atlanta? Yes, yeah, outside correct? of Atlanta, Noonan, Georgia. Okay, so those are two wildly different um, settings. Yep. Can you talk to us a little bit about the difference um, you see in school systems in those two types of settings? Yeah, so when I was a, I was a high school English teacher, a middle school assistant principal, and a middle school principal in uh, Noonan, Georgia, about 35 miles southwest of Atlanta. And I was there for 17 years. And at one time, my middle school, where I was a principal, had over a thousand students, right? A suburban community of Atlanta, pretty diverse, um, large by what I thought (laughs) were the standards. And then now I've been in Montana in a district for 11 years and we have three schools and our three schools together are smaller than the one middle school where I was a principal. So we, um, and you know, nowhere near as um, large or um, a little less diverse than what we had when I was in Georgia, but a very small knit community. And it's funny because by Montana standards, our district is considered, I would say, you know, urban, right? By national standards, certainly rural, but we're in one of the large population centers in Montana. Kalispell's a large population center. You know, we're right by Glacier National Park. We have an international airport. We do not ride horse and buggies to school, right? <laughs> um, so we're in a, you know, very populated area by Montana standards, but still considered rural by national standards. So our school district now, we have three schools. We have a preschool through fourth grade, a five through eighth grade, and then we have a uh, alternative K through eight that a lot of schools in the Valley have their students participate in. So again, we I went from, you know, at my largest 1,050 students as a middle school principal to now we have about 650 in three schools combined. And our junior high school, which is, uses a middle school model, but fifth through eighth grade, we have about 260 kids. On the one hand, you would think it's easier because it's smaller, but on the other hand, you have to span a much broader age range and meet the needs of kids across a bigger spectrum. Maybe with fewer resources, I'm not sure. Yeah. That's the biggest challenge. I I found as a middle school principal, I think the sweet spot was 800, right? You were large enough to have a lot of resources, but small enough to still ensure an adult for every child. And, you know, we used every adult, 
cafeteria, custodial, office staff, teachers, paraprofessionals, administrators, counselors. Um, it, we used everyone. And at 800, you had a kid for every, I mean, an adult for every kid, and you could specialize. Right, you could really specialize at each grade level. Teachers didn't have to cross grade level. They didn't have to cross subject, right? Um, when you get larger, it becomes so big, it's hard to do the adult for every kid. And when you get smaller, which is the case we have now, the adult for every kid is not a problem, which is the high priority, right? Because you wanna make sure every kid has an adult who knows him or her and you know can really be a good support for that student. But the resources are so much harder because you have teachers having to teach multiple grades or multiple subjects, or you have fewer course offerings, electives, um, exposure type classes that you hope middle school provides, mm -hmm. right? So that has, it, while the fewer, the lower number obviously allows for more attention, mm -hmm. you also have fewer staff, right? So it's not like you have all these staff spread out and it makes your class sizes smaller. It's that you, more people have to do more things, and it's harder to specialize, and then it's, you know, it becomes more challenging if I'm teaching every fifth grader and every sixth grader to build those relationships. And so I think many times smaller has a lot of benefits, but it also has some downsides, and particularly in having resources and spreading people thin. So you've had to be more resourceful. Yeah, we have. How does that translate to teaching? When you compare the role of a teacher outside Atlanta to the role of a teacher in your school beyond the having to assume responsibilities that might be out of their area of expertise or their training, do they have fewer opportunities to learn from one another? Does it impact professional development? How do you overcome that sense of isolation you might feel if you don't have as many people to plan with or yeah, it's, it's interesting, too, because when I was a middle school principal, we had really what you would perceive traditional middle school teams, right? Mm -hmm. Each grade level had three solid teams with every subject, plus every subject had a special education teacher by grade level. I mean, very well staffed and resourced. Now, um, many teachers teach that subject or grade level in isolation. That doesn't mean they're not quality. That doesn't mean they don't do a great job, but there's no longer, oh my gosh, I'm teaching this difficult eighth grade math concept. Let me see how my partner's doing it, mm -hmm. right? You lose some of that, which makes professional learning so much more important. You know, in, in our current district, we have a really, really strong board. Our board of trustees is just quality and really gets it and really understands the importance of investing in staff. And so we have a lot of professional development opportunities and a large number of those are job embedded on contract time. And so we wanna make sure that we don't use being the only person who teaches that grade level subject as a reason that we don't continue to grow in teaching that grade level and subject, right? Because we've got really high quality teachers who do a great job teaching their grade level and subject, but gosh, sometimes it can get lonely mm -hmm. and it can get isolating to be the only person who's trying to figure out how to teach an eighth grader what a direct object is. Gosh, who else can I go see? What's your trick for teaching an eighth grader direct objects? Ah, right? Mm -hmm. And when you have a small a smaller environment, it's it's just critical to provide those teachers support to work together and to be able to reach out to people outside of the district, right? To say, hey, what is, you know, what are you working on and, and how can we work together? And so we, we put a really high emphasis on teacher classroom visits and teachers having individual 
you know, growth plans with SMART goals and providing job embedded staff development so that teachers have time to work together because not having a common partner, I think is probably from my perspective, one of the biggest challenges of having a smaller school, you know? And I remember when I was a principal and we do this now in our district, um, you know, our expectation is you're in every class every week as an administrator, right? Every class every week. That doesn't mean you're doing a formal observation or providing lengthy feedback, but you're, you're visible. You're seeing what's going on. You're building credibility for understanding what's going on. You're helping yourself grow and seeing the different things. Well, when I was a brand new principal, when I was like 30 years old, and I'm not sure why to this day I got hired for that job, but um, I didn't go willingly. But I remember just being so overwhelmed, thinking, how am I going to support three different grade levels with five different subjects with all these diverse needs? I don't know what I'm doing. And so when I would visit classrooms, I was smart about it. I was very intentional. When I did sixth grade science, I did all three sixth grade science on the same day. Then I would do all three sixth grade math, all three. So I was learning it, and I would go to all three teachers and go, oh, she didn't. And then I could learn it again. Oh, and then you can also see, oh, gosh, you know, so-and-so could really use the support of this teacher because they were really strong in this. And how could this person help with this gap? That camaraderie and resource use among colleagues is difficult when you only have one person teaching a subject. And they need you to be pointing out who might be doing something that would make their job easier. Yeah because they can't get out of their classroom. Right. It, it's hard. And we do, you know, we we provide some release time for collegial visits, but nowhere near what a teacher could really use mm-hmm. to really deeply embed what that means. And at the elementary school, because, you know, my district is, goes down to three-year-old, you know, we have multiple grade levels. And so, I mean, multiple classes at a grade level. So, for example, you know, we have, you know, four second-grade teachers, right? So they can really plan together. But when you get up to the middle level and you have one teacher doing fifth grade math, one teacher doing sixth grade science, right? It gets, it gets harder. harder. Do you think that the social challenges that the middle schoolers are facing in Montana, either because it's small or because it's rural, are different than middle schoolers anywhere else? I, I ask because I have discovered in my travels that it almost doesn't matter where I go or what the school is or what kind of community or public, private, all girls, all boys, rural, urban, the kids' issues are all the same. Yeah, I don't I don't see a big difference. Gotcha. Um, I think that, you know, young adolescents have this need to belong, to fit in, to matter, for someone to notice them. And I don't care where they are, all the examples you just gave. Many of them are willing to do whatever it takes to be noticed. To be for better, better, yes. worse. better or for worse, right? I was and, hoping. Oh, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. I was hoping we would get into your work on building belonging for yeah. kids. Um, I know you've done extensive work and you give professional development in that area. For our teacher listeners, can you talk to us a little bit about how teachers can go about and some strategies that they can use um, and implement to build belonging within their school community for their kids? Yeah, I think it. You know, it's. It's very personal, and I think, I don't know of a teacher out there, even a a teacher who perhaps chose the wrong profession, doesn't like it anymore, isn't happy, who originally went into it thinking, let me do a bad job. (laughs) I just don't, right? I don't think that's the heart of teachers. But I think that, um, I think it's harder for teachers now because, and this sounds cliche, but it's just true, the access to social media and the impact that that has on kids today 
is so different than even 11 years ago when I was a principal, mm-hmm. right? I think I'm getting old too. But I, the impact of social media when I was a classroom teacher to today, you can't even compare them. Even so. my 21-year-old had, has had an incredibly different upbringing than his 15-year-old brother. Oh, right. And that's not even that far apart. No, that's right? six years. I mean, our kids are growing up with it now. And so I think teachers trying to find a way to help students belong outside of um, fake affirmations from social media, I think is really critical, right? Really building those individual relationships, really getting to know kids, really seeking out what is your interest and how is this class relevant to you. You know, a big deal for me, and I say it a lot, and sometimes it sounds more controversial than I mean it to, but I am a big, big believer that everything is equal in school. If it's not, don't have it, you know? Custodial services, equal to math, eighth grade math. Football practice, equal to the science test. English language arts class, equal to chess club. If they're not all valuable and important to a kid, what are we saying to a kid when we when we have that? What are we saying to the adult who's the family and consumer sciences teacher? My English class is more important than yours? God, that's a little egotistical, right? What are we saying for adult culture when we say my role is more important than yours? Right, And then you take that down to a student culture. What are we saying? That this idea that math and reading are more important than everything else is just ludicrous. And I'm a high school English teacher, so if I was going to dig deep for a subject, I got one to go for, right? And I'm a big believer in early literacy and just social literacy so we can communicate and be good to each other. But I think we've one of the, the big weaknesses we have is because something's so important to us, I love English literature. <laughs> and I can't imagine someone not loving The Great Gatsby, right? I can't even fathom it, and yet it's true. And so the idea that we would take something a kid is so passionate about, playing football, and say, my class is more important than football? What? By whose standards, right? And so I think one of the things that we've got to really do a good job of, particularly with young adolescents, is valuing what they value, right? And then using that as an avenue to get them to value things maybe that are very important but less valuable to them. <clears throat> Math, right? Actually, it's interesting you say that because one of our teachers at my old school would make a deal with kids. She would say, I see you're really jumpy, that you're having a hard time concentrating. I see that you're trying to talk to one another. I know that's important to you. And you know what? You're right. It is important. And it's important to me, too, that you can have that time to interact with one another. I have to get through the following four concepts. If I can get through these four concepts, I'm going to give you seven minutes at the end of class Mm -hmm. to talk to one another because it is important. But this is what I need to get through first. Can we strike a deal? And the kids really were willing to do that with her because she was saying to them, Mm -hmm. I value what you value. What I find in my role as a school counselor is that, yes, all of it's important, and it's important for us to convey to kids that it's all important. The social stuff is the academic stuff. Mm-hmm. If there isn't social stuff there is working, correct. there isn't learning happening. Right. Where they get tripped up and where we as the adults can help them is in the prioritizing. The rock, pebble, sand yep. metaphor. Yes. If you put, if the rocks are the must-dos and the pebbles are the should-dos. Don't put the sand in first. Don't put, this, <laughs> don't put the want-to-dos, the sand in first. Yep. I, the, the analogy I'll use is when I walk into the kindergarten classroom, sometimes I'll see the kids putting on their backpack and then they try to put on their jacket. Yeah. 
they have the sequence wrong. They're both important. They need to go home with both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you have to do but one before the, the other. Yes. yes. And I think it's funny, one of my favorite examples, this must have been my, I don't know, this is four or five years ago. And I, I as a superintendent, I and I keep a chart because it's really important to me. I ask our principals to be in classrooms once a week. I try to be in every classroom once a month. I have a smaller district. That wouldn't be feasible in a super large district, and I wear that. But I happen to be living the dream in beautiful northwest Montana in a small <laughs> district. And Good can, for you. And can hold myself accountable for that. So I visit classes a lot. And when I first started, teachers were kind of like, oh, the superintendent's in here. What's happening? But now they're just like, ah, eh, she's in here. So I'm in, I go into a chorus class, a combined 7th, 8th, middle school course class and I come in and the kids are a little bit antsy you know not really respecting the lesson talking a little bit and and the teacher is an adored teacher everybody loves him he's fantastic and he's trying to kind of get control like the superintendent's walked in y'all are all talking we're supposed to be seeing and you can see everyone looking at he's looking at me I'm looking at him I'm feeling awkward like should I leave this is a bad time and the kids are still talking, and he says, and I'm standing there, and this was probably only my third or fourth year in the district, and he says, everybody stop. You have 60 seconds to talk about anything you want to that does not relate to this class. You cannot talk about this song, a note, music, 60 seconds, talk about anything you want, go. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, and I'm and I'm feeling. I mean, we're just standing there staring at each other, you know. <laughs> the sixty seconds goes by, and he says, "Stop." Okay, we're on. I'm not a music person. We're on line three. Whatever. Pick up. Ready. It was the most brilliant use of sixty seconds I've seen in my career, and I've been doing this twenty eight years. That's amazing. It was, and he took the risk. Here's his, you know, superintendent in the room, right? That, that concern of how is she seeing me and what will she think of me. And he didn't disrespectfully not care. He cared more about, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm losing them. I don't have them. He gave them 60 seconds. I stayed the rest of the class because they sang and sang and sang and hit all the notes <laughs> and hit all the right melodies and harmonies and all those things you do in beautiful music. And it was a masterworks class, right? And I, I have used that example so many times, and I told him, I, I mean, you got back 20 minutes for that 60 seconds, mm-hmm. right? I, I always yes. say the same thing to teachers, that if someone says something mean or if someone's feelings are hurt, you have to pause mm-hmm. and stop and address it because no learning is going to happen after that moment. And the minute or two that you're going to lose to say, hold up. Let's clarify what just happened. You would have lost them all. Yeah. You would have lost them Better all. Better to lose two. <laughs> yes. You know, one of the things in our research over our um, book, Middle School, Place to Belong to Become, uh, Place to Belong and Become, which AMLE published, and we're actually doing our second edition, which we hope to have out by summer. But in the research, we interviewed, I don't know, dozens of middle school age students. Mm-hmm. And they were all anonymous. And... We interviewed them over what it meant to, to them to become, to belong, to what what does it look like when someone belongs or becomes it. Anyway, we've got all this plethora of just the richest research I've done that was, you know, not some formal chi-square, right? And what they told us over and over again, the common things that stood out was, don't let us choose our groups. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we get left out. Even, even the popular kids worry... In fact, some of the popular kids were more adamant, don't let us choose, because they didn't want to be left out, the peer pressure, right? Mm -hmm. 
the hardest time of the day is lunch. Yes. And wondering if and who we're going to get to sit with. Yes. Mm-hmm. And class change and recess were stressful. Mm-hmm. Over and over, it's that's the what they told us. Unstructured social right? time. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, you think back, you have kids, right? I mean, mm-hmm. my baby's 19 now and in college, and I want her to do well academically, and I know that's going to be help her future, right? But if I had a teacher have to tell me she's really smart or she's really kind and looks out for other people, I'm going to take a C all day. Give me a good kid, right, yes. who yes. includes others, yes. who doesn't make people feel excluded, who doesn't care about differences and will still be good to you, right? Mm-hmm. So when we start talking about let's just get straight to academics and we can't take two minutes to make someone feel better and we can't dare take 60 seconds to let kids be social, which is their entire human composition, mm-hmm. right? That's silly, mm-hmm. right? And it's that whole concept in our book of you got to belong before you have any chance of becoming what you have the potential to become, mm-hmm. right? Because when we are left out, feel excluded, have our feelings hurt. We don't care about the math test after lunch when we had to sit by ourselves and our two best friends sat together and planned a party for the weekend, right? We don't. And until we acknowledge that and can find some way to incorporate that in our day-to-day instruction, it's not just academic belonging. It's social belonging. It's behavioral belonging, right? Yeah, and I mean, it's academic risk-taking. It too, is, Because yeah. you're not going to do anything that threatens your place no. in that social pack. And it happens academically, like, I just won't answer because I'm not going to be fearful of looking like I'm not smart, right? Mm-hmm. Or I'm not going to try and insert myself in that group because I don't want to be rejected, right? I mean, it happens across all domains, you know? I, I'll never forget the kid who I told that research shows that the popular kids or the so-called popular kids are not necessarily happier. In fact, no, they're not happier. They're more stressed. Yes, and this... Because they have a position to lose. Right. <laughs> but the kid looked at me and said, no offense, Miss Fagel, but I'm going to have to see that so-called research. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. it's. I think, you know, when you go back to those strategies, you know, what are we doing as teachers? And, no, gosh, we cannot control everything that happens every minute. But we can make sure the space that we lead, whether that's supervising lunch or teaching social studies, or leading an advisory group, or providing class change supervision, whatever space it is that we're responsible for in that moment is a space that is safe and inclusive and high expectations with really high support so that when you don't meet them, you don't feel like you're not smart enough or you're not good enough. You just get more opportunity, right? And you get second chances. And and I go back to the grouping thing. Gosh, I can't tell you how many kids said, quit letting us choose our groups, you know? How can we be intentional about that, right? How can we really think about, okay, maybe it's a a 20-second pair to the person. I don't care. Pick who you want. You're sitting right next to them or whatever. But it's the same thing with seats, right? Letting kids choose where they want to sit every day, and this kid never gets to sit next to someone. And, you know, research, speaking of, shows us that the best way to help students learn about, appreciate, respect, and include others is to get them to know each other. Right. Don't let them continue to segregate themselves just because they don't like each other. Right. And so when we do intentional seating assignments, intentional grouping, we increase the likelihood that a kid will get to know this person they thought they didn't like Mm -hmm. and will be more likely to see the good in that person. And so when you think about seating assignments, gosh, I encourage teachers all the time, have an assigned seat and change them often. Yes. Right. Don't leave them sitting next to the same person the whole time. Yeah. It's so true. I did a mix-it-up lunch at my old school, and I had two groups of kids come up to me afterwards. 
One of them was really upset and said, don't ever do that again. I couldn't sit with my friends. Mm. And the other group said, don't ever do that again. Uh, the other group said, can you do that every day? Because for the first time, I didn't stress about who to sit with. Safe. And to both of them, I said, this is why we do. Yeah. Right? Just lunch. But for the kid who said... I didn't have to stress about how to sit with it. Imagine the kid going, especially at middle school, right? Yeah. The middle grades, where the majority of middle grade programs, kids change classes, yes. right? They go to yep. different classes throughout the day. And, you know, I'm a kind of a prone of, we maybe shouldn't do quite so many, and those transitions are a lot <laughs> of the young adolescent brain. But every time, so every 50 to 60 minutes, they have to stress about going into the next room and will they have someone to sit next to and when groups are chosen, will they be picked and then when that class goes to lunch, will someone sit next to them? Imagine repeating that all day, every 60 minutes for 180 days a year. It's bonkers. I'm exhausted. (laughs) And so when we can put those safety nets when a kid knows, when I go into that next room, the seats are already set, I know my teacher's picking groups, and I know there will be times... I get to work with Phyllis, who's my friend, because we rotate all the time. So it's not like that I'm excluded from working with my friends either, yeah. right? It's not, we're not saying don't let them ever work with people they feel comfortable around or they like, but just be intentional so that kids aren't in that situation every 60 minutes to wonder, am I going to be included? And, and as you said, I mean, even the quote unquote coolest, most popular kids who are included in what appears to be everything, that's not how it is. Right? They stress too. Right? Well, Lori, I could talk to you all day and night about all of this stuff, and you're speaking our language, and we so appreciate you coming to join us today on the podcast. And it's always a treat to have an opportunity to have a conversation with you. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Lori. A little.